start off by saying you all are an offensive people. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 2. Verse 15. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the ones we are aroma of death leading to death and to the other the aroma of life leading to life and who's sufficient for these things. For we are not as so many peddling the word of God but as of as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. And he um, reminded me of compost. And uh, probably when I say compost, I'll, a lot of you are gardeners, so you probably react um, like gardeners to compost. But if you're not, probably the first reaction is, eh. You know, you think of it as stinky, smelly, probably like rotten vegetables. Um, and yet, as gardeners, we know if it's healthy compost, it smells good. It smells like rich earth. It smells like life because there's a lot of life going on in it. Uh, as opposed to when compost goes bad because it's gotten too much water, it hasn't gotten enough air, and it does start smelling like your garbage that you haven't taken out for a long time. It does smell like all of those scraps just moldering. Um, so we are those who are dying to be resurrected and smell like death. If we're going through the process to the world, they perceive us as rotting. Though we and those who know the Lord and know his resurrection power smell the life in it um, and anticipate the life that's to come out of it. He mentions we're not as so many peddling the word of God, that there is not um, a transactional, because there, there is a, a use of the word of God that is pleasing to the world, right? There's the, um, ooh, let's be red letter people, you know, we're just going to read the words that Jesus actually said. And even then, we're going to kind of wink at it a little bit, so it all seems really pleasant. There is a selling of the Word of God that happens, um, that can happen, that doesn't go into that place where things are actually dying to be reborn. Um, but he says, we're not as those, but we are speaking, A, sincerely. We're not looking for any gain other than the Lord's glory and new life coming forth. Not looking for any gain from us. And as from God, we're speaking from his spirit. Not out of our flesh, not out of our, here's the pleasing parts of scripture, here's the good teacher Jesus parts of scripture. You know, that we can all get together and go, oh yeah, that's wise and it's gentle. And, um, and then ignore the rest. So if we are speaking truth from the spirits, we're offensive because our Lord is offensive. And his spirit moving in us is offensive. Matthew 10. Verse 16. 
Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You'll be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it's not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. And I know this is the Lord's doing this in us right now. He is... um, taking us even more into speaking by his spirit rather than from our understanding, rather from things that we've stored up, rather than um, from what we've gotten from other teachers. He is leading us more. I've talked with some of you. I know it's experience where he's saying, um, you need to be listening more and you need to be speaking it out more and you need to be um, rationalizing things less, preparing the careful way to say things less, and just listening and saying what you hear me saying. I moved a little too fast. For it's not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Now brother will deliver up brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake." His name is his character, is his spirit. But he who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For surely I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Baal's above, how much more will they call those of his household? And this is clearly happening right now. Um, just in the last couple of weeks, uh, I've been surprised by some of the mainstream, like, fairly neutral media sources where I've run into pretty blatant um, ridiculing of Christians um, and outright misunderstanding. Um, Whereas it used to be a little more careful, there was a little bit more like we're going to sort of respect everything. I'm seeing it leak through even in places where it hasn't before. Um, this uh, freedom to start calling the things we know to be true evil. Lack of understanding leads to offense. So back to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they're spiritually discerned? But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that may, he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So, again, just tying it back to, like, our Lord um, was offensive. You know, he was the stumbling block. He did um, confound people. And we, if we are following and saying what he says are going to do the same. Um, Because it can't be understood. Like, it can't. 
be understood by the world unless they have a desire for the Lord and he speaks to them by his spirit. And when people don't understand, they get angry about it. What did Jesus do about this offensiveness when he was preaching um, in Israel? Let's go to John 6. Because, right, the temptation is, you don't get what I just said that was from the Lord, so let me explain it. Which is how we really quickly step right from what the Lord has said into not what the Lord's saying anymore. Because we start going, how can I bridge this gap that only the Holy Spirit can bridge? Our understanding, our um, making nice ways to say what the Lord said are like, oh, I know where you're coming from, so let me figure out how to pitch it to you in a way that's relevant to you is never going to work because it can only be understood by the Spirit of God. John 6, on the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw there was no other boat there except the one which his disciples had entered and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone, when the people therefore saw that, I'm just skipping here because there's a little parenthetical. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into the boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. And this is going to be the controversy. This is the controversy right now um, with what the Spirit is saying and with what the flesh wants is the flesh is always looking for that, you know, we need food. Food's important. People die without food. People get really angry and edgy if they haven't had enough food. They do stupid things. You know, food's important. And there's always going to be that fixation on what the body needs or even the mind the soul needs when the Holy Spirit is talking about the needs of the Spirit. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform then, that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate manna in the desert. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Yeah, Jesus. Okay, you've got bread. But, but what about the food again? Like, wait a minute. You know, like he just said, it's, it's not about the food. And they're like, but there was, there was food given to our ancestors in the desert, and you made food multiply. So can we get back to the food thing again? It's just, it's, it's not connecting because there are not ears to hear what he's saying. Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. 
All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And then the Jews complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I've come down from heaven? And Jesus therefore answered and said to them, do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I'll raise him up at the last day. It's written in the prophets and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who's heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life, and I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This thing you're looking for to satisfy you for a moment is not going to last forever. But the thing I'm telling you is... And this is the controversy in the earth with what the Spirit is saying is I need, we have this need that needs to get fixed. And God's speaking out about an eternity with him. And the world wants an answer for right this second. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh which I shall give for the life of the world. And the Jews then quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up at that last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying, who can understand it? And when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It's the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by the Father. And from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. So I started that whole long section. Thanks for sticking with me through a big, long reading. Um, with saying, you know, what was his response? What's his response to their offense? It's to say, if you can't handle this, how are you going to handle truth when you see it face to face? It's not, let me see if I can, you know, find another way to tell you that. Let me see if I can explain it some more to you until you get it. It's, here is truth. Do you have a heart for it? And if you don't, you know, you're to step away. And who knows if there was a time where some 
Um, well, we do, actually, we do know because there was a very small group left at the end and then it grew again. You know, some received later. Maybe some of those were, who were like, eh, can't handle this. And then later we're like, oh, oh, now I'm listening. Now I hear it. I have a heart that has gone through a wilderness and is soft again to receive. The Spirit leads us into a place the flesh does not want to go. And this is um, one of the things I am marveling at. I have read in several different places, again, um, fairly... I don't know, right word is neutral um, sources that try to be respectful and unbiased are, are edging into places of, this is absurd. They look at us and say, this is absurd and what we believe. So let's go to 2 Peter 3.10. Because the flesh is recoiling against what the spirit is saying in the earth right now. And has always, it's not like, it's not like the flesh was like, yeah, this is a good idea back then, obviously. But Second Peter 3, verse 10. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. It looks absolutely absurd and even horrific on the outset. From the outside, that we are a people who are like, yes, we're looking for, I mean, that this is, actually stated out, unbelievers hold up the book of Revelation and go, who are the insane people who are longing for this day to come? Blood and fire and smoke and death. And what kind of psychopathic people must they be? Because that's what they see in the flesh. Not seeing Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for the new heavens and the new earth, not seeing that this pile of decay is heating up, full of air and the right amount of moisture, and teeming with microbes, making something that's going to create something beautiful and fruitful in just a minute. They just look at it and go, that's a bunch of rot. Why are you digging your hands through it and going, this is wonderful? This is a message about praying for Israel. (laughs) Um, And that was all the lead up. So let's go to Zechariah. So next installment of what the Spirit is saying at LightHop about praying for Israel now through many voices. Because there is a sobriety about praying for Israel. And we have to understand what it means to choose it 
in spirit and truth. Because it is possible to choose it without being in spirit and truth. In which case, um, it is largely just air. Blowing against the wind. um, Meaningless. But if it's in line with what the Spirit is saying about Israel, it's meaningful, but it is sober. Zechariah 12. It's about, this is about praying for Israel and also being a friend of Israel. Zechariah 12.1, the burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundations of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I'll make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. We can see this right now. In this day, Jerusalem makes people crazy. It's, you know, all you have to do is look at Jerusalem and what's happening in Jerusalem right now. People are out of their minds. They are drunk um, on a spirit that is not the Holy Spirit. And it shall happen in that day that I'll make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all the nations of the earth are gathered against it. What a paradox that here's this thing that is so heavy. And there's a, there's a um, repeated in this prophetic word that the Lord gave Zechariah. There's a repetition of the heaviness. You know, this is the burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. And he's going to make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. You know, can you imagine becoming the leader of the most powerful nation on earth right now in the natural and knowing you got to come in and one of the things you're going to have to deal with is Israel. You're going to have to deal with this problem that the wisest men can't figure out. You're going to have to make decisions about it with a bunch of people all telling you what you should do about it. A bunch of people giving you money and then telling you what you should do about it. You know, it's, it's a very heavy stone and um, all who would heave it away. Like, I imagine, I imagine there's got to be times where the leaders of the earth are just like, man, if I could deal with anything but Israel right now and what's going on there. You know, if I could just get rid of this problem, if this was not on my plate, life would be easier. And yet, at the same time, it attracts all of the nations. All the nations are turned toward it and are like, i got to stick my finger in that thing. You know, I've got to have my little influence or my big influence. I've got to somehow move this thing. And the people are all crying out, you've got to move this thing. You know, what are you going to do about this? We see what's going on here. Why haven't you made a statement about it? In that day, says the Lord, I'll strike every horse with confusion and its rider with madness. I'll open my eyes on the house of Judah and will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength and the Lord of hosts, their God. In that day, I'll make the governors of Judah like a fire pan in the wood pile and like a fiery torch in the sheaves. They shall devour all the surrounding peoples on the right hand and on the left. But Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, Jerusalem. 
The Lord will save the tents of Judah first, so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater than that of Judah. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I'll pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, that they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they'll mourn for him as one who mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one who grieves for a firstborn. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem like a mourning at Hadad Ramon on the plain of Megiddo. And it's fascinating to me that this chapter begins with the burden of the word of the Lord against Israel and ends with this salvation with Israel recognizing and mourning the rejection of Messiah and invitation for him to come back. You know, this is a burden of the word against Israel. There's um, violence against Israel in it, and yet salvation at the same time, which is an offense to the flesh. Agreeing with this is offensive. Israel herself has no love for those who pray for her peace in spirit and in truth. Let's go to Luke 19. It can be tempting to think, I'm going to pray for Israel. And we're going to be up here praying for Israel. And if, like, you know, if somebody saw that on the screen, they'd be like, oh, look at those people. They must love us so much. They're praying for us. Luke 19, 41. As Jesus drew near the city, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you'd known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. And this is true, right? None of us, until the Spirit starts talking to us, until we receive Jesus, until we see our sinfulness and know the price paid for it to make us clean, none of us know what makes for our peace, right? All of our flesh, what what I think makes for my peace is like an open schedule with, with a few responsibilities that make me feel good about getting them done, but, you know, mostly a lot of time to sit on my back porch <laughs> or play video games with my kids. What I think makes for my peace is, like, if I just had, you know, f- every financial need was met before I needed it instead of having to see it and then be like, okay, how's this going to be met, and then find out how it's going to be met by the Lord, you know, I, what I think would make for my peace is if I didn't have to wait, and if I could just be like, oh, yeah, you gave me this, and hey, oh, here's a problem, and it took care of it, and oh, you gave me this, and now it takes care of the next problem instead of back end, having to have a little faith for a while. These things don't make for my peace. As much as I keep, my flesh keeps going back to longing for them. What I think makes for my peace is a lot of people telling me how awesome I am all the time which would not make me peaceful. 
And these all translate into, you know, when, when the Lord's like, play for the peace of Jerusalem, what's the flesh want to do? Oh, Lord, if you just stop all the violence, you know, if you just make there plenty, if you make just the desert turn into a lush garden, if you make plentiful water, if you make everybody go, yeah, Jerusalem's awesome all around the earth, then that's going to make for her peace. It's like that's, that's not the prescription I have written out for bringing her to her peace. Her peace is when she acknowledges her king and says, come back and reign from this hill over us, over all the earth. And that doesn't happen by, everybody thinks you're great and you've got no issues. So when we commit to praying for her peace, and we're like, yes, Lord, I want to respond to your call to pray for Israel. And we come in and actually start praying for the things that he says are going to be the steps leading to her peace. It's offensive, deeply offensive. But, but by the Spirit. Someone may go, oh, this is love. But not many. We know not many. When we pray for Israel, we have to understand and remember that people have been persecuting Jews in the name of Jesus since about the fourth century. That there is a history that makes us deeply offensive just naming Jesus and not keeping it private in our own little corner separate from Israel. Um, one of the things that has popped up really forcefully right now is the world is starting to realize that a portion of Christianity is celebrating Jewish feasts, and it's deeply offensive. It is seen as we didn't have, and it actually is specifically spelled out by some that, oh, you guys, you know, you're Protestants. You gave up all your liturgy. You threw it out with the Catholics, started Protestantism, and now you don't have anything, you don't have any formal, you know, rituals to do. So now you're like, let's go steal them from the Jews. This is actually an offense that's in Israel right now, now that she's becoming aware. Um, which is all to say, when we pray for Israel, there is a sobriety in it to know that it does not look like love outside of those who are trying to hear what the Lord is saying. Um, it, in fact, is going to be deeply offensive to portion of Christianity, Christendom, um, to those who name Christ. 
this year, uh, there was a U.S. Episcopal bishop who issued a proclamation that forbade all of the Episcopalians in his diocese from celebrating Passover because of that same argument of, you know, you can't do that. It's offensive. It's, it's appropriating somebody else's culture, even though... Um, so one of the things that's, that's brought up is that the Passover that's celebrated today, the, the, all of the formal stuff about it, probably got put together about the second century. Jesus would not have necessarily dipped his finger in a cup, eaten a sprig of greens. There was definitely some dipping. There's definitely the bitter herbs, because that goes right back to the initial commandment. You have to eat the bitter herbs to remember the bitterness of slavery. So he definitely did that. But the accusation is, you're not even taking a Christian thing that Jesus did. You know, you're taking this Jewish thing. However, in the second century, there were Christian Jews celebrating Passover, part of that formation of what is currently the Passover celebration. Um, so we actually, we do have a heritage going back in the church of celebrating the Passover. But it doesn't look like that to the world. It doesn't look like that to a lot of those who name the name of Christ, and it looks especially also to, the, to a portion of Protestantism. It looks a lot like, wait a minute, why are you going back to circumcision? You know, like that, that ritual stuff. Like we got rid of that. We got rid of that with the popes. Why are you going back to it? You know, they want to go back to the controversy um, in the First Testament church of like, circumcised, not circumcised, do you have to, you know, not understanding, again, it's that offense comes up out of under, misunderstanding of like doing these things to learn, to see Christ prefigured in them, to see Christ celebrated in them. There is that one element of the current Passover Seder, the Afakoman, which is named a Greek word that has you know, there's a, a unity made up of three compartments with the middle that's broken and hidden away and brought back. That probably was a celebration of Jesus in that second century when this all got put together. There were Christian Jews still celebrating Passover and they're like, this is how we're going to do it. And somehow it got absorbed into the larger Jewish population. The, I don't think we shared it on this last time we observed this, but um, there is writing that, that the afakoman that comes back is supposed to be the last thing you taste, and it takes the place of the Passover lamb until it's possible to sacrifice one on the temple. Um, we have to understand, so I, I talk about, it's easy to go, okay, fourth century Persecution started with, with Rome becoming Christian, um, the Roman Empire. And it's easy to kind of go, okay, yeah, Crusades. Okay, yeah, anti-Semitism 300 years ago, but today. So about 50 years ago, um, maybe you all have read it, a book came out, became a bestseller about 
the end times got the evangelical world excited about Revelation again for the first time in a while because it had been kind of the book that you kind of go, I don't know, it's weird. But about 50 years ago, a book came out. A lot of people read it. I read it when I was very young. Um, and in the explaining of all of the steps, this is what's going to happen before the end. It was a um, pre-tribulation rapture book. So we're all going to get whisked away, but here's what's going to happen. Um, detailing out Revelation. And the evangelical world caught on to this idea that, wait a minute, if there's going to be a guy setting himself up as an abomination in the temple, and he's going to take away the daily sacrifice, we need a temple back, and we need a daily sacrifice back. And so over the last 50 years, it's become this thing of like, how can we help Israel rebuild her temple and reestablish her sacrifices so that a guy can come take them down, establish himself in them, which, I mean, at its very heart, like, when you think about that, I mean, if you think about it in the abstract, okay, these are the things that have to happen before Jesus returns, that sounds great. When you think about it as, we need to establish this so that the Antichrist can have a place to set himself up and get worshipped, and there is an element of we're going to be friends to Israel because it's a stepping stone to what we want. Not out of a heart for Israel. Not because the Lord has chosen Israel as his people forever. Not because he said they're the apple of his eye. But because we need to get them to do a couple of things so that we can have what we want, which is Jesus back. And that's not the spirit at all. Now, you know, if the Lord says do something, the Lord says do something. But if it's, hey, we need this to get what we want, that is using. It's not being a friend at all. And it's easy to go there. Especially if you think all of the hard stuff I get to get out of. I had read earlier... Um, Second Peter, which is all to say, in the last 50 years, people in the name of Christ have given reason still for the Jews to go, whoa, you don't really love us. You want to step stone over us to your God, what they perceive as somebody else's God. Back in Second Peter. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. So he does talk about hastening the day, right? We do. We want our Lord back. But how does he talk about the response is... holy conduct, godliness, you know? It's listening to his voice. It's drawing near to him. It's praying for Israel. It's being a friend to her. But it is not 
God, let's do the things that you said need to happen in order for you to return. Response team leader person. Want to come up? So knowing soberly that being a friend to Israel is an offense to a large portion of the world, both secular and religious. We go into our yes with sobriety and knowing that there is one who is not offended, but pleased. It's in the promise that the Lord gave Abraham. I'll bless those who bless you, and I'll curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So there is a, um, it is good to search our hearts and allow the Lord to search our hearts, to ask him when it comes to, if we um, feel the call and feel the response in our hearts to, to pray for Israel, to be like, Lord, what is the right motive in it? What is the right place? What is, where is the place of sobriety and humility that I can respond to this call? Not naively thinking, you know, this is going to be, this is just going to be sort of this, this lovely, happy kind of um, thing to enter into that people are going to go, whoa, how great is that? But the Lord, but the Lord has a, a well done. You're after my heart in it. And that's what we have to know um, is our reward in answering that call. So Lord, would you, um, would you touch us with the fear of your name? And I just th I thank you for this call. Um, and even a, a call to, to step up more in this season. Would you give us um, eyes to see correctly in it and the patience and the faith that is required. Amen.